You're listening to Writers on a New England Stage with A. Scott Berg. This program originally aired in 2013. This is Word of Mouth. I'm Virginia Prescott. Today, NHBR in the Music Hall in Portsmouth present Writers on a New England Stage with A. Scott Berg and his biography of Woodrow Wilson. There has been no great man, a contemporary of Wilson observed, of whom so much has been written, but of whom personally so little has been correctly known. One hundred years after becoming the 28th president of the United States, one writer declared Wilson to be still the least known important figure in politics. Wilson moved the country from isolationism to interventionism and then internationalism, forever changing America's role as a world power and roiling ideologues ever since. A. Scott Berg has written biographies of editor Max Perkins, film producer Samuel Goldwyn, Catherine Hepburn, and won a Pulitzer Prize for his biography of Charles Lindbergh. Berg continues his profiles of 20th century Americans with Woodrow Wilson, adding complexity and dimension to a man sometimes mocked as an inflexible moralist, a progressive crusader, or an idealistic professor out of touch with gritty real-world politics. On stage at the Music Hall in Portsmouth, A. Scott Berg began his discussion of Wilson with a bold claim. I have spent the last 13 years writing about Woodrow Wilson. I believe he was the most influential figure of the 20th century. Period. I also believe Woodrow Wilson's story, his personal life, was the most dramatic story ever to unfold inside the White House. And this is something I really want to capture. This is something I try to do in my books, which is to personalize my subjects. And I had never seen, having read hundreds of books about Woodrow Wilson, I had never seen another book that I felt humanized this man. And those of you who can picture Woodrow Wilson, that very long-faced, glum Presbyterian minister's son, and he was all of those things, but he was much more than that. This was a deeply passionate, highly emotional man, none of which seems to come out in any of the books. So I wanted to write a book that would give you that side of Woodrow Wilson because that is inevitably, you see, going to affect what he did professionally. And in this case, his profession was president of the United States at a most crucial moment in world history, which is to say the way he felt when he woke up each morning was going to affect the world. That's all. So... Here are a couple of things to bear in mind about Woodrow Wilson. Woodrow Wilson was the first Southerner to become president of the United States since the Civil War. This was a rather crucial fact in American history. Woodrow Wilson was born in 1856 in Virginia. He was raised in four states in the Confederacy. He remembered very well the Civil War before he was four years old. He was living in Augusta, Georgia, where his father was the Presbyterian minister. And he remembered all sorts of noise about the town. And some men were saying, Lincoln has been elected. There's going to be a war. Well, for a -a three-and-a-half-year-old boy, that was a rather traumatic thing to hear. Carried it for the rest of his life. He remembered the war. He saw the war. He saw his father's church turned into a hospital. He saw neighbors who did not come back from the war. He saw some who came back maimed. He remembered Reconstruction really well. And what a social upheaval that was. So this was a very crucial time for Woodrow Wilson. It really scarred him to a large measure in such a way that I've never seen written about in the books. But again, it's going to have a great effect. This personal period, these few years, are really going to affect how he deals with America's entry or not into the First World War because he keeps harking back, as we all do, to our childhoods. 
Second point I'd like you to remember about Woodrow Wilson. He was the most educated man ever to sit in the White House, period. I stop short of saying he was the most intellectual we had. Uh, I can't forget Thomas Jefferson and perhaps a few others. But Woodrow Wilson is our only president with a doctorate degree, for example. Wilson went to Princeton University. He studied there. He was a very good student. But what was most interesting about his studies at Princeton were what he did independently. He began doing a lot of reading on his own. He did a lot of writing on his own. And shortly after he was graduated from college, he sold his first piece to a magazine. I mean, it was a piece of political science, basically. Because already, as a teenager, Woodrow Wilson was thinking of a political career. And he thought the surest way of having one back in the 1870s, now into the 1880s, was to do what most presidents had done before, and that was to get a law degree. And he also realized most of our presidents had come from Virginia. So Woodrow Wilson, being a clever fellow, he decided to study law at the University of Virginia Law School. And that he did. And upon leaving Virginia, he went to Atlanta, where he opened a law office with a friend. And for a year or two, he stayed in Atlanta and practiced law, where he proved to be a really terrible lawyer. Didn't get one client in all the time he was there. He finally picked up one gig that his mother got for him in a little town called Rome, Georgia. Now, what is interesting about this is he went out there, the Presbyterian minister's son, and within days he met the local Presbyterian minister's daughter, a girl, a beautiful girl named Ellen Louise Axon. He fell in love with her. She fell in love back, actually, and they began a rather long courtship. Uh, before he could marry, uh, he went to Johns Hopkins University, where he became one of the first graduate students there, studying a brand new study, which was political science. Now, meantime, there's Ellen back in Georgia, and she was an art student and coming to New York a bit. But I should tell you, and this is so revealing of Woodrow Wilson, that during their two- or three-year courtship, they exchanged thousands of love letters. Thousands of love letters. And they are sickening at a certain point. How many ways can you say, I love you? Well, he would do it for 15 pages, and then later that day, write another letter. In any case, Wilson finished his studies at Johns Hopkins. He was offered a job to teach at Bryn Mawr College. He moved on to Wesleyan College in Middletown, Connecticut, and then finally he got the call he was waiting for, if indeed he could not have a political career, and that call came from his alma mater, Princeton. And he went to Princeton where he taught and became an indispensable member of the Princeton faculty, so much so that in 1902, after 12 years there, they made him the president of the college. Now, before Woodrow Wilson, his predecessor, called Princeton, rightly so, the finest country club in America. And Wilson and the trustees of Princeton wanted to turn that around. They wanted to change that. And over the next eight years, Woodrow Wilson not only reformed education at Princeton University, he reformed higher education in this country. And indeed, he introduced forms of teaching and forms of structure for the entire college, such as majors, electives to majors, sequences of courses, two lectures in a class, all these things. Those are all the Wilsonian model. He reformed education in this country. He then enjoyed, and here's another bullet for you, the most meteoric rise in American history. Period. In 1910, in October of 1910, Woodrow Wilson is the president of a small college in New Jersey. In 1912, Woodrow Wilson was elected president of the United States. 
What happened in between was that the state of New Jersey, which if you can believe or even imagine, was the most corrupt state in the union. <laughs> try, try. And imagine that this state was run by the most corrupt political machine. And this machine had such a terrible reputation, they said, you know what? We need a puppet. Why don't we find the squeaky cleanest puppet in the state? Let's go to that professor at Princeton. Let's get that president and run him for governor. And we'll just manipulate him for the next four years. And they did run him. And he won the election in a landslide. And the first thing Woodrow Wilson did as governor of New Jersey was kick out the machine. I mean, physically kicked them out. They were barred from the state buildings. And now all eyes turn to New Jersey to say, who is this man? And indeed, over the next 18 months, Woodrow Wilson came in with the most progressive political agenda of any state in the country. Well, now, not only the whole country, but more specifically, the Democratic Party of the United States felt they had found its next candidate. And indeed, in 1912, after a very hard-fought convention, Woodrow Wilson became the Democratic nominee. He won that election in one of the most exciting elections in American history in 1912, in which he ran against an incumbent president, William Howard Taft, the Republican, and Theodore Roosevelt, who had bolted from the Republicans to become a bull moose, to become the progressive candidate. So we've got this three-way race, and Wilson won in an electoral landslide. Now, in the next year, Wilson's first year in office, and let's stretch this out to two or three even, Woodrow Wilson presented and advanced the most progressive agenda in American history. I mean, within months, he was passing tariff reform, new graduated income tax, the Federal Reserve System, the eight-hour workday, workman's compensation. He put the first Jew on the Supreme Court. All these were big, bold actions that had one through line to all of them, and that was a leveling of the playing field. Wilson was a genuine trust buster. He was not anti-business, but he was anti-unfair advantage in business. And almost every measure he passed in his two administrations, and he's the only Democrat to be elected to two consecutive terms since Andrew Jackson in the 1820s, the through line to all this was equalizing, giving every American an opportunity. Now, he got all this stuff passed because Woodrow Wilson began governing in a way nobody had ever seen before. Wilson had, he being a political scientist, this very strange notion about how the executive branch and the legislative branch should work. And he believed that the two branches should cooperate. <laughs> and in order to do that, Wilson introduced a number of bold moves that appeared to be more, more stagecraft than statecraft, but in fact, the underlying theme of it all was statecraft. It was just, it was good politics. It was good government. He wanted to humanize the presidency. He wanted to put a face on the White House. We have this annual event of the State of the Union Address where the president comes in, lots of fanfare, lots of applause, blah, 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 red, white, and blue. That happens every year now. That had not happened for 112 years when Woodrow Wilson took office. And he decided this would be a wonderful way to make a real splash and to let the Congress know, to say nothing of the rest of the country, that there's a real person who lives in the White House before Wilson, you see, presidents would write a State of the Union, they'd send it over, and a clerk would read it. That was it. Not for Wilson, who happened to be a great orator, in fact, the greatest orator of the day. And so Wilson came and delivered it. Whenever he had an important legislative matter to take up with the Congress, and again the country, Wilson called a joint session of Congress. Twenty-five times he did this while president. 
If you take away the State of the Union addresses and add up the joint sessions of Congress of every other president, it doesn't come close to Woodrow Wilson's 25 joint sessions. It was very transparent. He became the first president to hold press conferences. This was a foreign concept, that the press could come to the White House once a week, and Wilson would put a microphone and and talk to them. That was it. Now, Wilson's domestic agenda really monopolized most of his first term, with one exception, well, two exceptions. The first exception was that his beloved wife, the one who got the thousands of love letters, she died one year into the White House. Wilson is distraught. The President of the United States sinks into a deep, deep depression, can barely get out of bed. The only thing that did get him out was the fact that that very week a war broke out in Europe that would blossom into World War I. And Wilson did everything he could to keep the United States out of that war. By April of 1917, however, the war seemed inevitable, and even though he had just run on the slogan, he kept us out of war, the German militarism was only getting worse, the torpedoing of neutral ships, the deaths of American lives, the German refusal to acknowledge American notes and diplomacy efforts, and finally Wilson went to Congress, another joint session, where he asked for a declaration of war. And within that declaration, Woodrow Wilson uttered one timeless sentence, which has become the foundation of American policy to this day. And here's the one line, and it may be the one thing you remember from high school history about Woodrow Wilson. The world must be made safe for democracy. That one line has been used, it has been abused, it has been twisted, it has been held up as an ideal. Whether you like it or not, whether you agree with it or not, it has become the bedrock of all American foreign policy since 1917. And whenever this country even contemplates going to Vietnam or Iraq or Afghanistan or Syria, it is all going back to Woodrow Wilson's one sentence. You're listening to a special edition of Word of Mouth from New Hampshire Public Radio. I'm Virginia Prescott with Writers on a New England Stage. Today, Pulitzer Prize-winning author A. Scott Berg talks about his biography of Woodrow Wilson. This program was recorded in front of a live audience at the Music Hall in Portsmouth. In 1917, we were an isolationist country. Our army was the size of that of Portugal. And Woodrow Wilson, within the next year, would mobilize two million soldiers and send them across an ocean. And so he did. And in the end, the main reason he did that was that he wanted to write the peace. And he figured it might be worth shedding American blood if, indeed, upon winning the war, He, we, the United States, could dictate what would be the peace. And it was then that he wrote 14 points, some of which were very mechanical, where borders were drawn and so forth. But the last, the 14th point, was the greatest ideal. It was the creation of a League of Nations. And this was Wilson's dream, his passion, his belief that if there was a kind of parliament where all the nations of the world could sit. It's it's out of King Arthur. If they could all sit there and perhaps settle differences before they erupted into a war, that was worth it because we then could have fought, as it was then known, the war to end all wars. Wilson got the treaty drafted. It had some serious compromises in it. But Wilson got his League of Nations. He brought it home, and here he faced the greatest challenge and a last tragedy of his life, which was the president could draft the peace treaty, 
but it requires, as he, a political scientist, knew, it required the ratification by the Senate. And he returned after being in Paris for six months. The president of the United States was gone for six months. And he came home, and the Senate was extremely hostile, increasingly Republican. They didn't want this treaty. And when Wilson realized that, he said, I'm going to do an end run. And what he decided to do was he embarked on what I think is the most quixotic quest any American president has ever embarked upon. He went on a 29-city tour of the country in the heat of the summer of 1919 in unair-conditioned steel cars on a train, which were like ovens, sometimes giving five speeches a day going to the West, and then he was going to circle back around, and he was changing hearts and minds with each speech and really winning the American public. What he did not fully know, because his doctor had not fully informed him, was that he had advancing arteriosclerosis. He had, I could now realize, going through his doctor's papers a hundred years later, he had been suffering a number of minor strokes up until then. And indeed, in the middle of this tour, Woodrow Wilson collapsed. They rushed him home to Washington. A few days later, he suffered a stroke. And now the story gets really good. Because, as I say in the book, here's another bullet for you. I believe the greatest conspiracy in White House history then took over the Wilson White House. Mrs. Wilson, the second Mrs. Wilson, Woodrow, in his deep depression, was rescued when he fell in love with a local widow in Washington, young woman, very attractive, They married after he had written her hundreds of the most passionate love letters you've ever seen. And indeed, Mrs. Wilson and a few doctors decided we will not tell anybody that the President of the United States has suffered a stroke. And in 1919, you could pull that off, and for the next year and a half, virtually nobody saw the President of the United States. Anybody who wanted to see the president, and I should tell you, he could speak and think, but he he was paralyzed on his left side. But he really was so weak that Mrs. Wilson had to decide who could come in and even see him. If anybody had something that required a signature, if anybody had a suggestion about the way the government should run, it all had to go through the second Mrs. Wilson, Edith Wilson. And she decided what he could see, what he couldn't see, whom he would see or couldn't see. And she, in essence, as has been alleged, became the first female president of the United States. She would say she was really a steward at best, that she never did anything her husband didn't want. But the day-to-day movements of the White House were all run by one woman, Mrs. Wilson. As a result of this period, we now have the 25th Amendment to the Constitution, which very clearly describes presidential disability. Woodrow Wilson left the White House, the lamest duck who ever left the White House. He had a rather tragic end. Living in Washington, he became the only president who left the White House and remained in the Capitol. And then something kind of crazy, something even inspirational happened. Wilson lived in this house a couple of miles from the White House. He was replaced by Warren Harding, the most corrupt administration the country had seen. And gradually, every day, people began to realize how much they missed Woodrow Wilson. He had this very clean administration, not even a whiff of scandal. And there'd be 10 people every day outside his house waiting for him to take his afternoon drive. Then there'd be 20 people. Then there'd be 50 people. And then on the first anniversary of of the armistice, there were 1,000 people. The next year, there were 10,000 people. The next year, there were 25,000 people. The Wilson House became a shrine. People would come from all over the world to see it. He died in 1924. We are not put into this world to sit still and know, said Woodrow Wilson. We are put in it to act. Thank you very much.
Biographer A. Scott Berg there filling out the portrait of Woodrow Wilson in front of a live audience at the Music Hall in Portsmouth for writers on a New England stage. When we come back, I'll talk with Berg about Wilson the man, the leader, the peacemaker, and the lessons of his legacy today. I'm Virginia Prescott, talking with A. Scott Berg about his newest book, Wilson, on this special edition of Word of Mouth. This is NHPR. I'm Virginia Prescott. Today, NHPR and the Music Hall present Writers on a New England Stage, recorded at the Music Hall in Portsmouth. Over there, over there, send the word, send the word. Today, Pulitzer Prize-winning biographer A. Scott Berg on his newest book, Wilson. It's a comprehensive portrait of Woodrow Wilson, who had the swiftest rise from citizen to president in American history. Here he is in a campaign speech from 1912, just two years after officially entering politics. The democratic program is this. To see to it that competition is so regulated that the big fellow cannot put the little fellow out of business. For he has been putting the little fellow out of business for the last half generation. Once elected, Wilson swept through a flurry of progressive reforms, creating the Federal Reserve, passing the first permanent income tax, and may have been the first 99-percenter president. He advocated for high taxes on the wealthy and munitions makers and was accused of redistributing wealth. In his second term, Wilson committed American troops and dollars to help the Allies win the First World War. Wilson is beloved for championing peace and the common man and reviled by prominent conservatives who have called him the root of all mischief and, less subtly, the nation's first fascist president. This is the architect that destroyed our faith, he destroyed our Constitution, and he destroyed our founders. A. Scott Berg told us he hoped to personalize the president. So as we sat down on stage at the musical, I asked him what personally motivated Wilson's groundbreaking progressive policies. Well, I think a lot of it goes back to being basically a poor Presbyterian minister's son. When he went off to Princeton, he met the sons of the wealthiest people in America. And I think for the first time, this boy who had a rather parochial upbringing saw people of the world who were not quite like him, saw people of the world who were not quite like him, and he also saw at Princeton great exclusivity. There was a very strict club system, a social system that really left out boys like him. Mm. And I think he carried that scar with him as well. So he was very mindful of, of inclusion. And I think he always felt that education was the way that every American should be able to lift himself. So there's this through line everywhere of leveling the playing field. And so, indeed, he's all for millionaires in, in 1914, 1918, making millions and millions of dollars when the average person made $3,000, say, in a year. But he felt there should be taxation that the rich could deal with that the poor could not. Mm. And so, yes, there was a redistribution of wealth. You call the story the Second Battle of Princeton. This is 130 years after George Washington (laughs) fought at Princeton, when Woodrow Wilson, then president of Princeton, is trying to break up the the social clubs, the dining clubs, the kind of social structure. And he suffers a great defeat there, one of the first big ones in his life. It actually continues a pattern established when he was young. He gets neuritis, he gets frail and sick. There seems to be this connection between his physical and his emotional health. There's no question about it. And in fact, making a count, he, he had about a dozen breakdowns over the course of his life. 
when I was going through the archives and things and, and diaries of people who were in Paris in 1919, while the leaders are literally carving up the world, I mean, they are drawing the map that we live with today, there were incidents of extremely strange behavior on Woodrow Wilson's part, which I now believe were, were minor strokes he was suffering, and Wilson was doing some really crazy things. I mean, there's one day before they're about to go into some big meetings to decide the fate of several countries, and Woodrow Wilson suddenly looks up and says, I don't like the way the purple furniture clashes with the green here, and I want all the red chairs here and all the blue chairs here, and and they're rearranging furniture. The doctor looks at him askance and says, Mr. President, maybe we should take a walk. And then they come back, and they're now rearranging Europe. Um, And so this was very tricky behavior. And as you point out, it goes back to his time at Princeton when he was first suffering minor strokes and defeats. Uh, And indeed, Wilson said the reason he ran for office for the first time uh, was to get out of academia, which he thought was the worst politics of all. This was not his only, let's say, shortcoming, obviously. He didn't delegate. He had a temper. He was accused by many of being messianic and ideologically rigid. What were some of his shortcomings as an ideal statesman, as he wrote of when he was younger? Yes, well, I think you've listed the chief um, shortcomings he had. He was not a great delegator. At the same time, he was not interested in details. I remember we had a president recently who talked about the vision thing, and, and Wilson was a vision thing president, so he didn't always know the specifics of what his visions were going to bring about. That was something of a shortcoming. Uh, he was uncompromising. He was unyielding. Even his friends said Woodrow Wilson was a very good hater, mm. and if you crossed him, as two or three of his best friends in his life did, the curtain came down. Woodrow Wilson never saw you again, never spoke to you again. That was it. He was, of course, a Southerner, so ensconced in the Confederacy that he had never actually heard the Star-Spangled Banner until he arrived at Princeton. That's correct. Now, he did embrace African-American voters, certainly in his first election, but in his unguarded moments, showed his cards as, as sort of a genteel racist. And that's a question that several people in the audience have asked. Was Woodrow Wilson a racist? He did segregate two federal offices anyway in his administration. This is a very difficult question to answer. Was Woodrow Wilson a racist? Yes, he was. Now, that being said, I think what I try to do in my book is contextualize that. I'm not his apologist. I'm not here to excuse Woodrow Wilson. But I think it warrants some explanation, especially in 2013, to talk about a man who lived in 1913 who was raised in the South. He didn't hate black people. He felt, however, the country, especially because he knew the South so well, was not ready to integrate. It was 50 years after the Civil War, and there were great motions in each direction. And all his southern friends, you see, thought, oh, this is a good opportunity for the South, now that we've reclaimed the White House, to go back to the way we lived. At the same time, he's being pulled by the rest of the country, or much of the rest of the country. Racism was not limited, I should add, to the South. But he was being pulled the other way. This is a great moment for you really to shine and really integrate the South with the North and and do some progressive thinking. Sad to say, this is Woodrow Wilson at his most regressive. And he introduced Jim Crow, segregation, to the federal offices in 1913, the post office and the treasury department, which in essence sanctioned segregation in any state that so chose. This is perhaps the blackest mark against Woodrow Wilson. That being said, he always kept the door open to all African-American petitioners. He listened to them. He knew what the cause was. He just in his bones did not think the country was ready. Or at least, that's what he told himself. As you pointed out, I found a couple of unguarded moments in speeches where he really talked about certain members of the black race thinking they were getting ahead too fast. Mm -hmm. No matter what the context is, that's just racist thinking. 
He was the candidate that ran in 1916 on keeping America out of the war, then advocated for peace without victory, and then he was leading the charge to make the world safe for democracy. He did reveal what he later admitted was a kind of futility of neutrality. Uh, he knew that it probably wouldn't work. Tell us more about his personal feelings about engaging in the war. Well, again, I think we go back to the personal Woodrow Wilson. We go back to his childhood memories. He wanted to do anything he could to keep us out of the war. That being said, he always felt about the Germans that they were just not going to let up. And no matter how many diplomatic memoranda he sent to Germany, and they would answer them, and he'd answer back, and they'd answer back, but they wouldn't change, and they just got more and more belligerent. And this made Wilson believe, I've got to start talking to the American people and get them mobilizing in their heads, at least, that this could happen. And while he originally said all Americans must remain neutral, even in thought, he now began to say, we've got to start building up an army such that by the time he made that famous world must be made safe for democracy speech, the nation really was ready to go to war. And it weighed very heavily on him. Every biographer of Woodrow Wilson tells the story of Wilson coming to Congress, giving that great speech. And it's an immortal speech, again, whether you agree with it or not. What they leave out of the books is to me the most telling moment, maybe one of the most telling moments in his life, which is after the speech, he and Mrs. Wilson, they drive back in silence up Pennsylvania Avenue. They get out at the White House. Woodrow Wilson goes into his office. He puts his head down on the table, and he sobs. And he says to his wife, can you believe they were cheering that speech? And he just weeps again because he knows he is about to sign the death warrants of 100,000 American soldiers, which he did. And to me, the most moving moment in the book comes after they've just about finished the treaty in Paris, and Wilson visits the American cemetery in Paris. It's on Memorial Day of 1919, and he gives a speech looking around at all the American graves and he basically says to those gathered there that he sentenced all those boys to their deaths. Mm. And he was responsible. He's one of the few presidents who ever copped to it, who really took responsibility for every dead soldier. And that's why he said he had to come home and fight the league, as he kept saying, so no mother ever has to see her dead son again. You're listening to a special edition of Word of Mouth from New Hampshire Public Radio. Today, Pulitzer Prize-winning author A. Scott Berg talks about his biography of Woodrow Wilson. This program was recorded in front of a live audience at the Music Hall in Portsmouth. I'd like to play a little game with you if we could. What would Woodrow Wilson have said WWWHS I okay. think okay. okay there are so many things in this book that they have contemporary relevance to us and yeah. so I just love to hear your interpretation of how Woodrow Wilson would address some of the things that are the, how he did address some of the things that mm -hmm. I think we're still struggling with today okay so how about the Constitution as a living document, this idea that it's open to contemporary interpretations and applications? He believed in this very strongly. He believed in the flexibility of the Constitution. And in fact, it was one of the things that made him a progressive, because originally he believed the government that governed least governed best. Uh, but it reached a point just when he was a, getting very interested in politics and then about to run for office, that he realized the necessity for being progressive because he said the world we live in, that is that world around 1910, had such a disparity of wealth, so much wealth in the hands of so few. He said the likes of Jefferson and Franklin and Madison, they could not have imagined this world. 
And so he felt one had to look for interpretations of the Constitution and how do you apply the documents to today's living. And he always thought that was the genius of the Founding Fathers, that things weren't so rigid, that things were left open enough, that these men were brilliant enough to leave air in all of those um, amendments and so that people could actually look at it and apply it to modern-day life. Uh, especially during the war, this was something that came up, the high price of raw materials. What would Woodrow Wilson have done about keeping prices low? Well, he did everything he could. Just this side of price fixing, he had all sorts of war boards uh, that oversaw things. Uh, This is actually one of the things that, that the conservatives to this day, I mean, Glenn Beck has a list of the most evil men who ever lived. And Woodrow Wilson is number one on the list. Hitler is six. But, but Woodrow Wilson, because of the income tax, because of this great government control which he imposed during the war, the country had never seen a war of this magnitude. And so Wilson felt we've really got to pull together, and in order to do that, we've all got to pull our socks up and live a certain way. In so doing, and this is the second really black mark against Wilson, he introduced or reintroduced the Alien and Sedition Acts, and he really clamped down on free speech. Mm -hmm. So this most progressive man also became extremely suppressive Mm -hmm. during World War I. As a a professor, I believe he wrote about the Sedition Act and then enacted it years later. Exactly. Which leads to a question from the audience. If you do dig up unflattering information about one of your subjects, (laughs) do you worry about slandering their reputation? No. Um... No, because, I mean, what they, what they said and did, they said and did. I'm, I, I worry about misinterpreting it. That's extremely important to me. I don't want to put something on the great record of life that is a mistake that really injures somebody's reputation wrongly. But when I find statements of just pure racism of Woodrow Wilson that I know he uttered, or in this case wrote, I had to print that stuff. That is who he is. You know, most biographers actually go looking for the scandal first, Mm -hmm. so they've got the juicy bits. I let my subjects dictate the book. I get as many pieces of information as I can, and then I see what the portrait is. Got a couple questions here. Um, Maybe we can tie a couple of these together. How did Wilson influence the post-World War I settlement in the Middle East? And what is its impact on the current situation in Syria? Um, Wilson, of course, at one point in 1917, created these 14 points. Clemenceau's reaction to this? Uh, Yes, which is Moses only had 10 uh, commandments. Uh, Wilson had 14, you're saying. Talk a little bit about that. You know, the the Versailles, you write about it as this ridiculous, petty bickering. And and Wilson sort of high-mindedly or maybe high-handedly, you might argue, you know, saying the U.S. didn't get into this for property. We got into this for principle, right? So talk about these 14 points, what that meant to Wilson. You know, a lot of people accuse Wilson of having been duped by Clemenceau of France and Lloyd George of England. and all. Wilson knew what he was walking into, and he got over there and he saw it. But here's what he came up against. There were two dozen countries in on this peace conference. Every one of them, as you have pointed out, had an agenda to get some territory or some treasure that had been taken in the past. They wanted it retrieved, or they really wanted to punish Germany so extremely that Germany could just barely exist. There was only one country that didn't have an agenda like that, and that was the United States. Wilson came over with principles. That's what he wanted. He came over basically with 14 points, which were not meant to enrich the United States, except in one way. And that is, if we could have a League of Nations, he believed, we might never have to fight another war. That was the only real bit of treasure he wanted. He didn't go over there for empire. Now, after five months being away from home into the sixth month, and perhaps having strokes, as I very strongly suggest in the book, Wilson felt, I've got to get home. We've got to move this thing along. 
Clemenceau was clearly stalling. Lloyd George was the head of a coalition government, so he was playing both sides of his own country all the time. And Wilson began to make a couple of compromises, one or two that were fairly serious, uh, one or two that were pretty minor, but he did it all so he could have his league, and he did get his league, so he got that home. It was certainly not a perfect treaty, but in the end, I have come to believe I'm not sure there's a perfect answer for every problem. And especially when you have 25 participants, where is it written you're going to come up with a solution that's going to please everybody? Wilson was the one tempering voice over there saying again and again, if you beat Germany down too hard, there will be another war in 25 years. And, and that proved to be the case. When he left Versailles, he was facing a really big fight back at home. Henry Cabot Lodge, among others, the waspish <laughs> senator, Chief had vowed gosh. to oppose it. Um, in fact, FDR later acknowledged that there was a clandestine plot to dismantle whatever Woodrow Wilson brought home. Not sure if we can relate to any <laughs> of that today. Um, here's the question. 14 points. This was the basis for peace in the world as far as he could see it. But did Lodge have a point? Should he have worked on it with Republican senators? Should it have been much more of a collaborative effort? Lodge did have a point, and, and here is the great tragedy, I think, of Woodrow Wilson's life. His greatest strength, Woodrow Wilson's, was that he was so unyielding, so uncompromising, and some of this rigidity could have been the result of strokes again, I think, and just his feeling bad, just emotionally and physically. He would not budge. And there was debate for months. And finally, at the very end, when the last vote is going to come up, even Lodge, who was his chief adversary, offered a solution which would have changed about 50 words, and it wasn't that severe. And Wilson simply refused to consider it. Mm -hmm. So I would say Woodrow Wilson's greatest strength, this inability to compromise, was also his tragic flaw. Yeah. And in the end, Woodrow Wilson, I would have to say, stabbed himself in the heart. You describe one of the visitors to the White House... The invalid Wilson he says something like, this giant of a man was reduced to a pygmy. It's heartbreaking. It's, it is. There, the, there are scenes in the end of the book that are so moving. As I was writing them, mm. I, was, I was sometimes literally crying. Uh. It was so horrible to see. There's, there's one scene where he's, he, he now can do virtually nothing. You know, his wife is, is really running the day-to-day -day operations. And so every afternoon, Woodrow Wilson would go into the East Room and run motion pictures and just watch the movies. And when they ran out of, you know, movies that you could see in a theater, they ran the, the Signal Corps movies of Wilson's arrival in Paris where he was greeted as the savior of the earth. And imagine, here is now this stroke victim sitting in a wheelchair, sitting in this cavernous room, watching the greatest man who had ever walked the earth. And at the end of it, he, can, he can't stand up by himself. And you, you hear his cane and his dead foot clomping against the floors of the White House, you know, as he, as he goes off. It's just, it's just too sad to bear sometimes. What do you think he would think of the evolution of what became his creation? You know, what's going on in the U.N. right now, deadlocked over Syria, for example. The United States is trying to figure out other ways to take action against Syria. Well, I think he would certainly like that the conversation is going on. Wilson loved that. He loved sustained dialogue. He would like the fact that most of the nations of the earth are in one room at least talking about these things. He would like, and I, I, I think he would like President Obama's deliberateness. 
uh, rather than rushing into things. Wilson always believed if you give things a little time, who knows what solution might surface? Who knows if Russia might suddenly be talking to Syria? I mean, who could have planned such a thing? Who knows if it will work out? If it doesn't, who knows if something else might come along? So that part interested him. I would say, though, that the United Nations is not the League of Nations, and in large measure it's because the League didn't happen. And so I think when the U.S. did not join the League of Nations, suddenly there was a moment of great weakness that even the president, you see, couldn't carry his own people, so that when the U.N. was formed a generation later, I think in the backs of a lot of people's minds was, well, yes, but this isn't really the League, and who knows what America will do? Do we really have the backing of everybody here? So I think the United Nations started on a, on a false step almost, and in some ways has never fully caught up. Certainly what it is in the ideal is great, and it is purely Wilsonian, uh, but it just doesn't seem to work right. How about the other way around? We have a, what many call the Wilsonian Democrat in office, president who's won the Nobel Peace Prize. Yeah, as did um, Wilson. Extremely polarizing figure, a great orator who can move millions. Also called Hitler by Glenn Beck, um, <laughs> by the way. What lessons can our modern presidents or our contemporary politicians learn from Woodrow Wilson? Well, let me start with the one Wilson would dislike most, and that is the need to compromise. Yeah. Uh, that's a big thing. But short of that, and this is perhaps the biggest difference, I think, between Presidents Obama and Wilson, and that is this notion of sustained dialogue. Me, now, I'm talking just Scott Berg about the president, the current president. I often feel that crises pop up, as they inevitably do for every president, and he sort of lurches from crisis to crisis, whereas Wilson at least had this ongoing dialogue with the Congress and with the American people. He was always out there discussing things with them through the press conferences, through the joint sessions, through all the press coverage. And so there was this sustained dialogue that I think made a difference, that made, made him more human, personalized the relationships. So it was hard sometimes to come down against the president. And I think that's something perhaps Obama could learn from Wilson, is a way to personalize his presidency a little more. Please do join me in thanking A. Scott Berg for giving us more than a pleasurable history lesson tonight. <laughs>